I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to General Conference Saturday. This is Making a Difference. KSL shines a light on efforts to help Utahns in crisis. The homeless, the out of work, the aging. Here's Jeff Kaplan on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. This is a peaceful Saturday afternoon. It's a perfect day to reflect on our families and our relationships, our matriarchs and patriarchs, the elderly, and how we care for them. Which is why my guest is Debbie Booth from Adult Protective Services, part of the Utah Department of Health. Hi, Debbie. Thanks, Jeff, for inviting me to come and talk about this really important subject today. You're joining us to talk about a problem that also typically takes place behind closed doors, elder abuse. It's a serious problem for those least able to stand up for themselves. We're aiming to discuss what you can do to help make life better for older Utahns in difficult circumstances. And according to the statistics I've seen, Most Utahns have no idea there's such a thing as elder abuse. None of us likes to think about elder abuse. We like to think that everyone is taken care of. Nothing really could be further from the truth, actually. Elder abuse can be physical, neglect, it can be financial. And so we see a lot of it in Utah. When we talk about elder abuse, we're not just talking about the horrible nursing home stories that you hear on the news. Not at all. Um, Most of the time, we see things, particularly in homes, we see in our financial exploitation area, 73% of the time it is family members. In terms of combating elder abuse, I guess the most important thing is for people to communicate and to report it. We see it and we oftentimes recognize that it's occurring, but we sort of look the other way. People are really frightened or or um, sort of hesitant to report things when they see it. But this is no different than child abuse. This is a very, very vulnerable population. So we really need to have that oversight. And, and I believe that it really takes our, our whole community to act on this and to make sure that our elders and vulnerable adults are safe. There are laws on the books to protect the elderly, but before they're enforced, somebody has to report a problem. Yet elder abuse often takes place behind closed doors. And in the vast majority of cases, it goes unreported. I think that's one of the major problems we see is that it isn't reported. It's so underreported. We we think that it occurs more often than we even realize. It's really tough to report a family member, and the elder or vulnerable adult themselves certainly don't want to report it. They don't want to get their loved one in trouble, and so they don't want to report it. And it's really tough for us to combat it if we don't know that it's occurring. I really am not as concerned about the the things that I can see. It's the things that I don't see that I'm really concerned about. Let's talk about nursing homes. We're with Debbie Booth from Utah Adult Protective Services. A lot of people have elderly relatives in nursing homes or families are considering whether assisted living is right for a parent. And you hear these chilling stories. What should families considering some form of assistance 
watch out for. They need to go in and make sure that that facility is taking care of their loved one. Almost every facility in the state is understaffed. Any abuse is intentionally committed by and large. I think a lot of times it happens because of short staffing. I mean, there are a lot of different things that occur in facilities. But again, I think it's up to us as as the family, as neighbors, as um, community to care for these folks and to watch out for what's going on. So the first step is vigilance. Debbie, on the Adult Protective Services website, there's a list of things to watch out for, flags to watch for that could indicate your loved one is being mistreated. A lot of times, um, vulnerable or elder adults won't disclose, but they will show signs in terms of behavioral signs. Like what? So, for example, if I was chatty and I was very social, all of a sudden I become withdrawn, I become fearful. Um, Those are some of the signs that that may occur when somebody is experiencing elder abuse or neglect. You know, maybe somebody is wearing briefs. They need to be changed really frequently or the skin can break down. They They can develop bed sores. So those kinds of things need to be watched. You're talking about signs of neglect, which is also a form of abuse. Absolutely. What are the laws that cover elder abuse? So we have two laws in the state of Utah. One is a civil law. And it is, it governs all the civil liabilities with re- regard to the state of Utah. The other is a criminal law. Physical abuse can be criminal. Neglect can be criminal. And financial exploitation can be criminal. Adult Protective Services does not have any ability to remove someone from their home. The public a lot of times thinks that we can go in and if there's a bad situation, we can go in and just remove that person from their home and put them in a protected environment. The statute doesn't allow us to do that. Say you have a horrific situation where an elderly parent calls police and reports they're being physically abused and the police come out. When the police leave, Is she left in that same home? Hopefully, no. First off, if she was physically abused, we would take her, or we wouldn't, but she would be taken to a health care facility to, to be checked out. Then we would go in and assess the situation to find out alternatives for her. So maybe her her son, if he's abusing her, he needs to be removed from the home. And we work a lot with the local area agencies on aging to provide services. They would be able to help this individual in ways that maybe we couldn't. So when you see abuse or suspect abuse inside a neighbor's home, at a nursing home as you pass by a room, What are you supposed to do? In Utah, we have a mandatory reporting law. The law says any person who has reason to believe that a vulnerable adult has been the victim of abuse, neglect, or exploitation must report to police or to us, and hopefully both. So people oftentimes don't want to get involved. They don't want to seem like busybodies. But you're saying if you see something, say something. Exactly. Debbie, thank you so much. Thank you, Jeff. If you are ever physically abused, call 911. Other abuse needs to be reported to Utah's Human Services Department. You can Google them or you can call 1-800-371-7897. When we come back, making a difference for people who've paid their debt to society. This is Jeff Kaplan. Stay here. Welcome to General Conference Saturday. This is Making a Difference. KSL shines a light on efforts to help Utahns in crisis. Here's Jeff Kaplan. Now we turn our attention to another population that's often overlooked and sometimes feared in our community, ex-convicts. In Utah, 
Almost half the people who've been to prison once will be back behind bars within three years. A group of ex-convicts are trying to change that. KSL News Radio's Frank Muller visited them at the Other Side Academy. A thrift boutique in Murray has rave reviews, 4.8 stars on Google from over 200 posters. But the great deals, rare finds, and friendly service aren't the real treasure there. We take our customer experience very, very seriously. We want people to leave. I like it when people come up and say, you have the best customer service of anyone. So here's this ex-con running a thrift shop in Murray. Frank, is it scary? No, actually, it's really nice. In fact, they label it a thrift boutique because it doesn't feel like a thrift shop. It feels like a specialty store. And honestly, that's by design. The Other Side Thrift Boutique is just one business run by the Other Side Academy, a training school that helps criminals change their lives. The program is run by former criminals themselves. Executive Director David DeRocher is smartly dressed as he sits in his office at the Other Side Academy with two of his students. But not long ago, he was a very different man facing the possibility of life in prison. I was a drug addict for about 27 years. Uh, As a result of that, spent a lot of time in and out of jails and prisons. I did a two-year prison term, a five-year prison term, a six-year prison term, and a 10-year prison term. And as a result of that, after my 10-year prison term, I got arrested again and was on my way to prison for the rest of my life. That's when he heard about Delancey Street, a California-based two-year rehabilitation and vocational program that could be an alternative to prison. David really turned his life around, and since 2015, the Other Side Academy has been changing the lives of people that others had given up on. Frank, are there women involved in this program? Of course, absolutely. One of them is Leticia. I was incarcerated 40 times. I'm 33 years old, and so that means I was incarcerated numerous times per year. And I knew I wanted something different. Everybody says change, but nobody ever gives you the tools to change. I could have got out on APMP again and did the same thing over and over again, the same cycle, and I was just tired of it. Like, I knew I wanted something different. I knew I needed something different, but I just didn't know what it was. Dave says the reason the Other Side Academy works, where other programs fail, is both because of the methods and the people. Who better to help us than us? Addiction really is disconnection. That lifestyle is disconnection. Recovery is reconnection. When you come someplace and you become connected to the people that are overseeing you on a real level, a meaningful level, then you're more apt to listen to the feedback. You're more apt to take the influence that's being provided for you and change becomes much more uh, attainable, if you will. Jordan has been a student at the Other Side Academy for more than three years. When the judge allowed him to enroll there in lieu of his sentence, the prosecutor didn't have much confidence that he would make it. Well, so the other end of that story, uh, flash forward three years later, and I'm back in front of that judge for a review to see how things are going. And the same prosecutor's in the room, the judge is in the room, and they take a step back and they say, wow, is this even the same man that was standing here before? And the judge turns to APMP, the, the probation uh, you know, arm of the law here in the state, and says, why aren't we putting more people into this, into this program? If this can do this for this man, then why isn't this open to more people? Why have I not heard about this other than in his case? Jordan says the responsibility he owes to others helped drive his change. You know, it's more than just a work, you know, a job we show up to to do each day. We realize that it's that connection with the community. We're repairing relationships with the community. And my behavior, how I carry myself, what I do and what I, I choose in each moment makes the door open and available for the next man who's facing a lengthy prison sentence. All of this is accomplished without a dime of federal or state support. The Academy supports itself through donations 
and through its businesses, including its top-rated moving company and thrift boutique. Frank, sounds like some of these criminals know life inside prison as, as well as they know life outside. It has seemed that for many of them it would be impossible to turn things around. Yeah, um, David said that on average the people who were there had been to prison 25-plus times. So, yeah, you would think that they couldn't turn their lives around, but what's happening there is amazing. So this is Lisa's station. She's Bo Clark manages their thrift boutique. She's pretty much mastered it. She knows the prices of things. She knows um, what's going to sell, what isn't going to sell. She's passing that knowledge on to Brian. That knowledge was passed on to her from Stephen. And so now that Stephen was a master of this, he can't do it anymore. So he moves over to clothing and someone else has to learn it. Um, which is really counterintuitive in a business world because once you have someone that's mastered something, they just do it and you don't have to think about it. But then we're not an academy anymore. We're just a business. Bo knows personally the confidence they need to thrive because he is a former drug addict and convict himself, and it took a similar program to help him realize he could be much more. When I went into Delancey Street, I was, I was working at Wendy's. And while I was there, I worked as an admin. So I, I assisted the facilitator. I made the calls. I answered all the phones. I did all the computer stuff. And when I graduated, I was going to go back to minimum wage, you know, just simple labor. And they said, no, you're, you're an admin now. Like, you should be looking for office work. And I was like, no one's going to believe me when I say I worked at this rehab at, for free, you know. And they were like, give it one week. So for seven days, I want you to just apply for jobs that are paying $40,000 a year and that are um, actual legitimate office jobs. It's like, all right, I'll give you one week. First interview I went on, I got the job. It was like a high-end piano dealership, and I became their service coordinator. And I did that job for seven years until they coached me to come here. (laughs) So, Frank, there's a thrift shop in Murray and a moving business. How many ex-cons work at the other side academy? Currently, they have over 90 students there at their various businesses. Do they plan to grow? They do. They're hoping to reach about 150. How can we help? How can we make a difference? You know, they love being self-sufficient, and so the best way to make a difference is to use their businesses. Their thrift shop is incredible. Their moving service is top rated. Uh, and, you, of course, you can donate on their website as well at theothersideacademy.com. KSL News Radio's Frank Muller. Thanks, Frank. Thanks. The website, theothersideacademy.com. When we come back, how you can help make a difference for the homeless. This is Jeff Kaplan. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Making a Difference. KSL shines a light on efforts to help Utahns in crisis. Here's Jeff Kaplan on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. It might seem odd that our discussion of homelessness in northern Utah begins with a bongo drum being pounded in Chennai, India. Joined 
by a guitarist in Italy and a drummer in Senegal, Africa. This beautiful song was recorded by musicians who played their instruments in nooks and crannies all the world over. One of them, a singer in Kingston, Jamaica. New York City. It's just a shot away. It's just a shot away. This is a performance of what's become an anthem for the homeless. The song is Gimme Shelter. Important to note, it was recorded in 2011. video was created to raise awareness about homelessness by musicians who contributed their parts from all over the world. It's been seen a hundred million times on social media. A guitarist in Tokyo. You hear the washboard in New Orleans. Homelessness had become a worldwide problem. Homes were foreclosed. Donations dried up. And as the number of people forced to the streets had swelled, these musicians sang their hearts out. Ooh, a storm is threatening my very life today. If I don't get some shelter, oh yeah, I'm gonna fade away. The problem was growing in Pioneer Park, in Rio Grande, in Ogden, in Seattle, in Santa Monica, with echoes and ripples everywhere. Hard times, 2011. in this old song is that love is the answer. We've heard that message echoed from our state government, from the hundreds who donate their time to fight homelessness, and from these musicians all over the globe, and even from our most respected corporate leaders right here in northern Utah. Frankly, they are people like you and like me who have had some financial reversals that, that simply leave them on the street. I'm talking with Harris H. Simmons. He's the board president of Shelter the Homeless here in Salt Lake City and is deeply involved in the fight against homelessness. Harris Simmons is also the CEO of Zions Bank Corporation. He runs the largest locally owned bank in Utah and also reaches to Utahns on the lowest rung of the social ladder. The irony of this is not lost on him. We feel as a, as a company that a huge part of our mission is to try to make all of the communities we operate in better places for all of us to live. And uh, we talk about doing that for, for people at every step on the economic ladder, if you will. And it starts with those who have nothing. Harris Simmons has been involved in the fight against homelessness, not just for years, but for decades. Just a brief background. We formed Shelter the Homeless when the homeless shelter on Rio Grande Street was created back in the mid-'80s. I was asked and talking with him, I slowly came to understand that you don't end homelessness. You don't fix homelessness. It's a problem you tend to with love, just like the song says. Yeah, I, 
kids. But these children have no home. It's actually very scary. Their mom, Shani, is homeless. Then not all of us are lazy. Some of us get put into the situation. Not all of us are druggies. Not all of us. I mean, I certainly am not. I'm, I'm a, I am a very intelligent person. And um, we are truly in a rough situation. And if it were my choice, we wouldn't be panhandling. She was interviewed outside the City Creek Mall by a guy who runs a website called Invisible People. Shani has three children, and she might not fit your stereotype. As you can hear, her kids are much like any other children. I'm doing the best I can. I'm taking care of three little girls by myself. And I'm actually, um, even even no matter what we're doing right now, I feel like we're on a more positive road right now than, um, you know, than we have been. And I, I feel, I hope that we're closer than ever to getting out of our situation. So... But, um, it's hard to imagine raising children this way, but Shani sees her situation as temporary, and she's actually optimistic. And that's the thing. We talk about the homeless as if they're a group of people, the homeless. They're not. It's a complex population. There is no one-size-fits-all description. There are so many different types of people, so many different types of problems out there. Include families. They include uh, certainly include a number of single men. They include a lot of veterans. They include people who uh, have mental health issues. They include people who have uh, who are living on the edge financially, and had whether it was an illness or uh, some financial uh, mishap that took them over the edge. It's hard to characterize the homeless as being a homogeneous group. It's actually a very diverse group of individuals with different kinds of problems. What a lot of people don't know is that about 15% of the homeless population just self-resolve. This is Amy Russell. She's an associate director at Shelter the Homeless. They will come into a resource center for a few days or a couple weeks maybe, and they'll you know figure out another place to be. At any given time, 15% of the homeless are on the street, and then they're not. It's an ever-changing population. So who are these people who've fallen onto hard times? I challenged Harris Simmons about the homeless and especially the panhandlers you see at the off-ramps. So, the so first off, in your experience, are they just lazy? So for, for, first of all, a lot of the people that you'll see on the street panhandling are not homeless at all. We know that, uh, that many of those individuals probably are lazy. Just sitting at the intersection yeah, down they, at the bottom of the overpass. And at, sure. And, at, and at, at the end of the day, they, they are not going to the shelter. They are going, uh, they're actually going home. But there, there is a population uh, that seriously needs our help. Another popular misconception that they're all from out of state, that they were all bussed in here from California because supposedly in Salt Lake City, the homeless get whatever they want. Is it true? Well, the, the fact of the matter is you find this problem in every major city in the United States. I always like to say that if, if you were looking for a great place to be homeless, you'd go to San Diego. Uh, <laughs> the, the fact of the matter is that most of these people actually have some tie, some connection here. Most of them have been here for some time before they became homeless. But they ended up in Pioneer Park and the Rio Grande area, which began to look like a third world city with tents on the sidewalks, homeless children meandering in the streets, and drug dealers on the prowl. A simple walk through the gateway would leave you dodging discarded drug needles in 2017. And then this 
moment. We have been engaged in an unprecedented effort. Lieutenant Governor Spencer Cox at a news conference announcing Operation Rio Grande. Call it tough love. $65 million would be laid aside in a Herculean effort to catch the drug dealers, get help for the mentally ill, offer rehab to the addicted, and for those befallen by hard times, a helping hand to lift them up. What would normally have taken uh, at least six to eight months to accomplish, to come up with this plan, has come together in just 16 days. This was a crisis, and Utah finally had an answer, but not a solution to homelessness because homelessness is not a problem to solve, no. It's a reality that we have to tend to, caring for this ever-changing mass of people who stumbled. But when we don't, we had a graphic example of streets flooded with hungry children, businesses faltering as they did downtown. Some say, throw them all in jail. Well, who's going to build the prison? Whose tax dollars? Simplistic answers were not going to fix this seismic problem. And when we come back, we'll talk about the black eye. Salt Lake was suffering every single day until hundreds of people stepped up and decided to make a difference. We'll talk about how you can make a difference for the homeless, for our community, for Utah. Stay here with KSL News Radio. We're back with Making a Difference. Jeff Kaplan here, and this song is musical proof that homelessness has been a problem for as long as singers have had voices. This is the late George Michael in 1999. Songs about a man who lost his home. Once I built a railroad, made it run, made it race against Brother, can you spare a dime? It's been sung by an almost endless list of famous singers over the decades. And as the years go by, the song has continued to find an audience stretching all the way back to 1930 when it was first recorded by Bing Crosby. Buddy, can you spare a dime? The song was controversial. As we plunged into the Great Depression, some considered it anti-capitalist, and there was an effort to have it banned from the radio. But its message resonates anew with each passing generation, that we have to tend to the needs of the homeless. It's a message that we're learning all over again these past few years. And in 2019, we sit at a crossroads in Utah's relationship with its least fortunate. This building screams dignity. It means that those who are suffering can find a place to restore their dignity and reclaim their lives and become part of society in a meaningful way. That's Gail Miller. The second of three new homeless resource centers in Salt Lake City is ready for service. It's named after Gail Miller, owner of the Utah Jazz and a longtime supporter of homeless services. She's Utah's wealthiest resident. And Gail Miller is on the board of Shelter the Homeless. So here's another pillar of the community recognizing that we're only as strong as the weakest among us. Now, what if you're not a billionaire? How can you help? Well, the answer might lie inside the new Gail Miller Resource Center, where they stress this is not a homeless shelter. They specifically call it a resource center. If that sounds sort of PC, it's not. This new facility was built by Shelter the Homeless in the ballpark area of Salt Lake City. Because these resource centers will be very different. We're not going to warehouse them. They will have opportunities to grow and develop and build skills. 
to go back to where they came from, be happy, healthy people. It's a 200-bed facility where those in need will learn job interview skills. They'll have access to computers. You get a caseworker. There's a health center, a laundry, even a barber shop. Unlike the road home, where people would drift in every night off the streets. This is a place where you stay during the day to get your life straightened out. To be homeless is to live in crisis all the time. You cannot build a life on a world of crisis. And so this is a center where we try to take away that crisis, that they know that they will have a bed here, that they have a place to put their things. That is a big thing that people don't understand is that, you know, they have things that are meaningful to them. and they have That's Amy Russell from Shelter the Homeless. So in theory... How long would a homeless person stay at the Gail Miller Resource Center? We're trying to kind of keep a track in our minds. We're trying to hope that we can maybe have a turnaround of 30 days. It could be longer, of course. 200 beds at this new facility. So it's time for some math. How big is the homeless population here? Well, ballpark. I I can tell you that at, at the peak in the winter, the population that finds shelter gets up to around 1,100 the actual population becomes a little tougher to define. Now, they, they do this point-in-time calculation, and it's, it's several thousand. But there are a lot of people that, are, that don't want to be in a, in a resource center or a shelter, and we certainly can't force them there. No, you can't force people to a shelter. Some are so lost in drugs or mental illness, they reject walls and a roof, and it becomes a police matter. But let's remember, homelessness is not a crime. Trespassing can be a crime, illegal drugs are a crime, and mental illness requires hospitalization. It's our first responders who become the point of contact with these homeless people, the kind nobody wants in their neighborhood. That's why Shelter the Homeless has been trying to reassure their neighbors that this new place is going to be different. Full conversations we've had, um, lots of different meetings with individuals who live here, and sometimes it's just a you know long personal conversation right before... You came in, I probably had a half-hour conversation with a member of this community and trying to assure him that our our goal is to be the very best neighbors we can. The resource centers created by Shelter the Homeless are run by three organizations, Catholic Community Services, Volunteers of America, and The Road Home. You can make a difference by donating to any of these four organizations, and they need volunteers to help in the centers. You can lend your expertise, and you can give... Love. Happy Valentine's Day, sir. And some candy. Here's some teenagers outside the road home on Valentine's Day a couple years ago. They just decided that they were going to hand out Valentine's and candy to homeless people. One of my friends was all, why are you going to go pass out Valentine's? It won't change anything. And I was like, feelings change everything. It will make them happy. And he was like, give them money or something. I'm like, no, I don't have money. You can give your money. You can give your time. I know the spot where they're handing out the candy. See, first time I set foot in Utah, I landed here, rented a car, and drove to my friend's photography studio in an old warehouse converted into an artist enclave near Rio Grande. Within an hour of my arrival in Salt Lake, I was parked across the street from the road home. First words my friend said to me when I pulled up, make sure to lock the car. That's a homeless shelter over there. Shady characters. My first moments in Salt Lake City. This radio broadcast is our attempt to make a difference in northern Utah. Now, it's your turn. We've listed the charities that could use your help on the KSL News Radio Facebook page. Or you can just text the word SHELTER to 57500. We'll get you all the information. This is Jeff Kaplan.
Join Jeff on Monday for your drive home from 3 to 7 on KSL News Radio.